Daniel chapter 1, sorry, chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, keep that in mind, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but the, a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright now, for I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of, our, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said to me, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, against these except Michael, your prince. Now, in this chapter, we see Daniel receive, I'm going to say something to you that may surprise you. I believe some visitors, plural. For a while, I've only seen this one this angel as one angel, and I'm going to suggest to you, you don't have to believe me, but I'm going to suggest to you and lay this out for you in our study tonight. I think Daniel was actually visited by possibly three angels here in this account. And one of them possibly was the Lord Jesus himself. We'll get to that in a little bit. He's, he, we see Daniel receive some visitors who bring him some more understanding about what is still future for Israel and the land in the prophesied 70 weeks to come. When we were last together, we finished our look at the Daniel 9 prophecy of the 70 weeks. And actually, this, go to verse 14, chapter 10, verse 14. 
One of the angels says to him here, and I've come to make you understand what is to happen to your people, that's the Jews, in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And as you're going to see, he lays the foundation here in chapter 10, chapters 11 and chapter 12, the whole rest of our study of Daniel, are going to be some very, very specific prophecy about what's to happen in the coming years, in the time under Persia, in the time under Greece, and then there's going to be a break in the prophecy, and it's going to jump to the last days and the Antichrist and all that. It's going to be an amazing study in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And so he's been told, he says, what I'm about to share with you, and that's what's going to happen in chapter 11 and chapter 12. He gets the rest of the vision is going to concern your people in the latter days because it's still yet to come. Now, chapter 10 happens two years after Daniel's visit from Gabriel in chapter 9. So this is the year 536 B.C., and Daniel's about 85 years old at this time. Now, at this point, Daniel has seen 50,000 people leave Babylon to go to Israel and live and rebuild the temple. Go back to Ezra chapter 1, and let me kind of show you how Ezra sets the stage for what's happened between when Daniel got the vision in Daniel 9 and when he gets this vision in Daniel 10. Go to Ezra chapter 1 and look at verses 1 through 4. Ezra 1 verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, when did Daniel get his vision in chapter 10? In the third year of, of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, and besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." If you go to the end of chapter one or chapter two, we're not going to do that. It lists for you who all went, some of the names and how many from this tribe and so on. And we know now that there were 50,000 that left Babylon once Cyrus became king and he was the head of Persia and he's in charge where Nebuchadnezzar and all those guys used to be. Cyrus says you can go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. 50,000 Jews left Babylon and went back to rebuild the temple. Though there's a question then. How come Daniel didn't go back? I mean, he cared about Israel. He cared about the temple. Who's the number two man in the kingdom, right? <laughs> well, definitely, if, if God had allowed him to go, we know he would have gone back for sure. Some people have tried to say, though, that he's 85 years old, Jim, you just said. He's probably too old to go back. Well, actually, that doesn't really match with Scripture very well. Go to Ezra chapter 4. Sorry, Ezra chapter 3. Look at verses 8 through 13. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, 
Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites, heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So how long were they in captivity? They were in captivity for 70 years, but there were some old men there who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, and they were old enough to remember it from back then. So there's a strong chance that some of these men that went back and saw the new temple were the same age as, as Daniel. So you can't say, well, he was too old. We don't, there were other old men that went. But interestingly enough, they remember how big and glorious Solomon's temple was. And when they saw the foundation of this one, they just wept and said, it's not even the same. But other people were just so excited to have the temple being built, they couldn't tell the difference between the people happy and the people sad. By the way, that makes me feel better because when my wife cries, I can't tell if it's happy tears or sad tears. I can't ever tell. I always have to ask her, happy tears, sad tears, let me know. Some people speculate, though, that God had him stay in captivity to accomplish God's purposes for him under Medo-Persian rule. Now, this is the possibility. And maybe this is why... Daniel does something very interesting. Go to chapter 10 and look at verse 1 again. He has not used his Babylonian name since chapter 5, many, many years prior. But look at chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So there's a possibility, and like Allison had said earlier, if God wanted him to go back or would let him go back, he probably would have been back. But there's strong chance that God had further responsibilities for him there, and we already see he's been given a vision. He's now actually not even in Babylon. He's at, uh, by the, the Tigris River at this point. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. The honest answer is we don't know. We don't know. But for some reason, he's still and his responsibilities under the Medo-Persian kingdom now. Now, Daniel, though, according to verses 2 and 3, has been mourning for, for Israel and for the temple for three weeks before receiving this vision. Why was he mourning? I mean, wouldn't you think he'd be happy? Because 50,000 people had gone back and the foundation of the temple has been laid. Wouldn't you think he'd be happy? Why, do you, why was he mourning? Well, there's, again, some speculation. I'll give you ahead of time. We don't know. Well, he might have been mourning that he couldn't go. That's a possibility. I know one is that he could be joining the old men and mourning over how small it was in comparison. 
But there's also something going on that a lot of people may not realize at this point, and I want to bring it out to you, and it might be helpful for some of you in some things you're going through right now. Go to Ezra chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 5. Even though God has used the king of Persia to make a decree to go back and rebuild it and, and encourage people to give, and they brought the stuff from the the temple that had been stolen back. And even though people are praising God and the foundation's been laid, there's resistance still. Look at chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the, the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esherhadon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in, the building, in, in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So here these people that are enemies of Israel who are in the area, they come and say, we want to come and help. We worship the same God. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua are wise enough to realize they don't, they don't mean this. They said, no, thank you. We're going to build this ourselves. God's commanded us through Cyrus. We're going to be the ones who do it. And their real heart, their real attitude became clear. And they actually tried to discourage the people. They tried to make people afraid. They were bribing counselors to try to work against it. I, I, I got to chase this rabbit real quick. Have you ever noticed that when God makes you a promise, not only sometimes does it take a while for the promise to be fulfilled, there are times that it looks like it's about to finally be fulfilled and you hit a roadblock. Have y'all ever had that? By the way, that happened to David too. Remember how he's anointed the next king of Israel? But he doesn't become the king of Israel for 15 years. And during those 15 years, he goes back to tending sheep. He fights Goliath. He goes to work for Saul. Then Saul tries to kill him. He spends the last of those years hiding in, in the rocks and the caves. But then finally Saul is dead and David goes to Judah and he's anointed king. Is he a king over Israel now? No. If you know the story, he served as king over Judah for seven years. Five years into his kingship over Judah, Abner takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and takes him and anoints him to be the king over the northern kingdoms, and they're all against David being king. Here it looks like his promise is finally going to be fulfilled. And there are all these roadblocks, and then there's struggle. Here it looks like after 70 years of captivity, the nation of Israel is finally going to be able to go back and rebuild the temple, and there's trouble. Folks, that's why we have to hang on to the promises of God and not let circumstances determine whether or not we feel like we're being, God's happy with us or not. And we need to be faithful to trust that he will do what he said he will do. And don't just assume, oh, it looks like it's finally going to happen, and then it doesn't. A lot of times we get discouraged and we want to quit. And I'd say to you, and boy, I'll tell you, that's a series of messages God's having me working on right now is on hanging on in these last days. Don't grow weary. You will reap if you don't give up. There's a strong discouragement that's happening across the globe. There are Christians who are committing suicide. There are pastors who are quitting the ministry. There's a strong sense of just discouragement. And I say to you, the Bible says, hang on in the last days. Hold on to Jesus.
Now, if you remember, I started this lesson by saying that Daniel was visited by some visitors. Like I said earlier, for years I've seen the angel in chapter 10 as the same angel the whole time. But deeper study has caused me to see that there may be more than one angel visiting Daniel here. And one of them may be the Lord Jesus himself. We actually see a pattern of this. In the Bible, Jesus has appeared already in Scripture to Abraham in angelic form to give him insight into what is about, he's about to do. And in that instance, in Genesis 18, go to Genesis 18, he has company. Go to Genesis 18. We're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 and then verse 17. Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2. And then look at verse 17. It says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Now jump down to verse 17. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here in chapter 18, Jesus comes before he takes on flesh in angelic form, if you will, with a couple other angels. And he appears to Abraham and his purpose is to give him insight into what's going to happen in the future. Your wife at this time next year is going to have a child. And then he goes on and tells him of what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's a possibility. Again, you don't have to agree with me. This isn't one of those things that is make or break. But it, I want to suggest to you that the first angel that shows up to him in chapter 10 in verses uh, 5 through 9 is possibly the Lord Jesus himself. And that once you get to chapter 10, there's a couple other different angels. Let me show you where I'm coming from and why I think this. Go ahead. The one that was held up by the king of Persia. Can't be Jesus. Exactly. That's what we're going to get to in just a second. But you're good. You're right. And the one in verses 10 and following this held up by the king of Persia couldn't have been Jesus. But the one in verses 5 through 9 possibly could be. Look closely again. Go back to chapter 10. Let's read again verses 5 through 9. Because I want to pull some parallels out from the scriptures here. It says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me didn't see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. In other words, he passed out. Go to Revelation chapter 1. John, as you know, is visited by Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. We'll start in verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like, white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Of course, then he puts his hand on him and says, I'm the one who was and is and is to come. So does that not sound very similar to Jesus in this description? There's some strong similarities. I don't have time to walk you through others when you go to chapter 7 and the parallels of the mighty, uh, the the ancient of days and all. But there are some other parallels here as well. John, Daniel says that he alone saw the vision, but everybody else that was there with him knew something was going on and they ran because they were so fearful. That parallels what happened to Paul when he met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. Go to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, look at verses 3 through 7. It says, now as he, Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly light from, a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Jump over to chapter 22 of Acts. We're going to look at a couple other places where Paul recounts this testimony, and we get some more information as well. In chapter 22, verses 6 through 9, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Jump down to verse chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. And chapter 26, verses 12 through 18, Paul continues, and he tells it again. And he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me so Clearly, it appears, though, that there's a strong possibility that this one that visits him in verses 5 through 9 is Jesus himself. Again, doesn't, I'm not even 100% sure I'm right. I'm throwing it out as a possibility because of all the parallels with how he's described and the fact that it matches other appearances of Jesus in, before he took on flesh. And then after he was in his glorified form, we also have the fact that the, he alone saw the whole thing. Others knew around him, knew something was going on. And the fact that Daniel and John and others, when they met him, fell at his feet as though dead. Now, as you brought out, Glenn, it appears that a different angel, if the, the angel in verses 5 through 9 is Jesus, it appears that a different angel... Uh, appear, uh, comes to him. And the reason why we know that it has to be a different one if the first, the first one is Jesus is like you brought out. He had a struggle against a demon and he couldn't defeat the demon for 21 days until he got help from Michael. Jesus wouldn't have that problem. If it was Jesus, he would, remember Jesus is God, he created them. 
He can, he can defeat them, and he's going to. But this da- angel not only strengthens Daniel, he also encourages him with the truth that he is greatly loved. We talked about that last time we were together. I want to point out something else to you about that. Let me remind you, if you don't remember, go to chapter 9, look at verse 23, Daniel 9, verse 23. It says, Gabriel tells them in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I've come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. And then in chapter 10, two years later, he's told the same thing again in verse 11. And he says, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright now, for I have been sent to you. All right, and now look at verse 18, a third time now. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said to me, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. God does not see us as his servants anymore, folks. You're not working for God. By the way, does God need you to do anything? No. He's not served by human hands if he needed anything, Acts 17, 25 says. Go with me to John chapter 15 and look closely at what Jesus is saying to his disciples here as he's getting them ready for his departure, his resurrection, the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's laid the foundation in the upper room that night after they're taking the, taking the Lord's Supper. He starts teaching them about the coming and dwelling Holy Spirit in chapter 14. And in ver- chapter 15, as he's been teaching about the abiding relationship, he says in verses 12 through 15, John 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. In other words, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, I have been sent to give you understanding. God wants you to know what is to come, because you're loved. Daniel is then told again by the angel, the one that I think is not Jesus. And he says, oh man, greatly loved. I've been sent to give you understanding. And it's this angel that's going to give the vision in chapter 11 and chapter 12. He says it again. You're greatly loved and and I want you to be of good courage because God wants to show you the things that are to come. Go to John chapter 16. Look at verse 12. In John 16, verse 12, Jesus told his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Let me say something to you, folks. We're not going to totally figure out all of God's plans. The Bible says that's not possible. I actually think we're going to spend eternity getting to know more and 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 more of who God is. I don't think we'll ever totally tap that all out because otherwise we'd be God. Can't do it. But the Bible does say that those who obey him, who walk with him, he loves us all. We've already loved because of Jesus. We looked at that last time we were together. Jesus said, don't say, I'll ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father loves you already because you believe in me. We're greatly loved. And he's given us his spirit. And he wants to show us 
what is to come. In other words, when you were a parent of your children and you knew what they were going to be dealing with down the road, didn't you get them ready for it? Didn't you prepare them for preschool? Didn't you prepare them for high school or middle school? And better, you had to prepare them for middle school. And didn't you prepare them for college? Because you wanted them ready for what was to come. And you would teach them and show you, look, this is what's going to happen in the future. And I want you to be ready for it. You'd prepare them for marriage. You prepare them. That's our responsibility as loving parents. And your heavenly father knows what's going to be coming down the road for you. And actually... He's already praying for you in accordance with the will of the Father in words you don't even understand. And he will show you and get you ready for what is to come. And I think a part of that is he's given us his insight. If he's revealed it to Daniel, don't you think it would be revealed to us as well as his children who have the spirit within us? Don't just sit back and say, well, God's going to show Jim. He's willing to show you. He will show you if you believe and if you trust and you ask him for eyes to see, give him patience. Let him do it on his timetable. Let him, he knows what you can handle when. And he knows that some people have more responsibility than others in the days to come. But be understanding of you're not to just blindly go through this life and hope it all works out. God has got you here for a reason and a purpose, and he wants to use you for his glory. He doesn't need you, but in doing so, he's going to show you things. And he wants to show you them for his reasons and his purposes. I hope to be used as we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12 to get you excited about the fact that God knew every little detail of what was to happen. You're going to see when we get to chapter 11 and chapter 12, you're going to see God years before Alexander the Great showed up. Talk about Alexander the Great in unbelievable detail. Historians say there's just no way Daniel could have been written prior to that. The specifics of the prophecies are too detailed. There's no way. No, God knew. And on top of that, he's also going to give him a picture of the Antichrist and what's going to be happening there as well. There are some things we can see. But he's showing us these things so that we would believe that everything he said about what is still yet to come will happen. Just like he said. Now, this battle in the spiritual realm needs to be looked into further. This angel had to fight against the kings of Persia and specifically the prince of Persia. Also, as he says, this angel would return to fight against the prince of Persia again and the prince of Greece. By the way, which kingdom's coming after Persia? Greece. We've already seen this a couple of times. God's been showing them. Look, after the Babylonians, going to be the Medo-Persians. And after the Medo-Persians, going to be the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, going to be the Romans. And then after that, there's going to be a rebuilding of the Roman Empire. And there's going to be this one horn that's going to be heading up and he's going to take over. He said, I had to fight against the prince of Persia, meaning a demon, a very powerful demon. So much so that this powerful angel had to get help to defeat him. But he says, I got to go back and fight him some more. And then after that, I'm going to fight against the prince of Greece. There are ranks of angels. And there are ranks of demons. But in some way, these angels and demons are working either with God and his plans for heaven and earth or against God and his plans for heaven and earth. But ironically and interestingly enough, God's still going to use the angels that are working against him in his plans for heaven and earth to accomplish his plans for heaven and earth. There's a wonderful sermon out there that was preached years ago by Erwin Lutzer, the pastor at Moody Bible College, and sorry, not Moody Bible, Moody Bible uh, uh, Church. He preached a sermon called God's Satan. 
God's Satan and how he could have easily defeated him and have him in the pit right now, could he not? But he's allowed him, even though full authority has been given to him, Jesus has allowed him for a season to accomplish his purposes because he knows his intent and he knows what he's going to do and he's going to use it for his purposes. That's why way back in Genesis 50, Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's going to use the evil that's in the world to accomplish his good purposes. Folks, I want to encourage you, stop getting upset about what's going on in the globe. God's still in control. And if you walk with him on a daily basis, he'll show you what he wants you to do on a daily basis and he'll use you for his purposes. But he's already written how it all finishes. You're not going to change it. So you might as well just say, all right, Lord, it's going to play out. But I want to be used by you and I want to accrue reward. I want to be someone you can use between now and then as it all plays out as you've seen. Again, I'm not going to take the time to take you into that too much, but go to Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1. See, there's a danger as I try to teach people about God's purposes for angels and the ranks of angels and all that stuff. Because once you start seeing some things that I, like, I'm going to show you, you're going to be tempted to pray to your angel. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, look at verses 13 through 14. And says so he's talking about Jesus and to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God uses his angels to accomplish his purposes on the earth and in the spiritual realm. But part of their role is to serve us. Isn't that Interesting. Remember how when Jesus was praying in the garden, sorry, not in the garden, well, actually also in the garden, but in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and then afterwards an angel came and strengthened him, supernaturally gave him strength. In the garden, we see him do it again. At the same time, we see Daniel's had that happen a couple of times where he's just so wiped out from what he's dealing with in the spiritual realm. An angel comes and touches him and strengthens him and speaks to him and he strengthens him. Go to Psalm 103. Well, definitely. Now, again, whether or not uh, everybody has a guardian angel, I don't know. But at the same time, there are scriptures that talk about how there are angels that look after us. And then there's also, I'm not going to go there. Like I said, this is too deep of a study and it'll derail us way too much. But there are actually, there's a passage that in the book of Deuteronomy that kind of hints at the fact that there's one angel for every human being. It kind of hints at that fact. He numbered the angels according to the numbers of men. So there's a possibility to that, but I don't know. Psalm 103, look at verses 20 through 22. It says, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So here the, the psalm says, praise God to the angels that do his will. But let me say something to you. Does the Bible say that God's going to use angels to help you? Yes. Do you need to pray to your angel? No, because the Bible actually says when it warns of false teachers, they actually warn about those who teach the worship of angels. When you start praying to your angel, who are you not praying to? When you pray to your angel, you're saying, angel help me instead of Jesus help me. That's idolatry. And plus, does an angel live within you? 
No, Jesus himself has already said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And on that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father. We have Jesus living within us. We don't need an angel, although he uses them for his purposes. They're his ministering servants. But in a weird way, even though we're created lower than the angels, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, and the angels are being used by God to minister to us and to serve him and us, they're still curious about this whole relationship that we have with God that they can't have. He didn't send anybody to die for them, and they rebelled too, some of them, right? We've been given a weird relationship, and he's got a purpose and a plan. We're going to hint at that a little bit. But not only did Michael the angel help this angel fight for Daniel and Israel, Michael is the angel whose responsibility is protecting Israel. Go back to chapter 10 of Daniel. There's a couple of things here I want you to see in chapter 10 of, of Daniel, verses 13 and then verse 21. And Daniel 10, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, there's different levels of angels, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Jump down to verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael. Then he says something very interesting. Your prince. Not only is he a prince of angels, he's Israel's prince. But it gets even more specific. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. Now, isn't that interesting? He's actually referring to, go to chapter 13 of Reve uh, chapter 12 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. We'll look at this more later on when we get to chapter 12 in those verses. But let me just kind of show you chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, by the way, the dragon Satan himself, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. This hasn't happened yet. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and all you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because that he knows that his time is is short. Let me just say this to you. You think it's bad? It's not even close to what's to come. You don't want to be on the earth when this stuff happens. But let me say something else to you. Michael, the archangel, is responsible for the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And I believe there are angels who have responsibilities over other nations as well. But so does Satan have people that work for him in the spiritual realm, on that other side. That's why there's a prince of Persia. There's a prince of Greece. 
Now, you got to understand, and I'm not going to go into too much detail for this because I think it freaks too many people out and they go chasing things they shouldn't chase. But I'm going to talk to you real quickly in the time we have tonight about the fact that many Christians are too oblivious to the fact that what's really going on in our world is deeper than just what we see. If you think we can just get some people elected and everything will be changed, you have no clue with what's really going on in the spiritual realm. It's not a one-to-one ratio. Well, the number of angels versus demons, correct. But at the same time, God's allowed the demons to have some authority for a season. All right, now, I don't know if you caught this or not, but there's an intense spiritual battle going on in the spiritual realm having to do with the forces of good and evil and God's plan for mankind. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Again, we're just going to hit this quickly. Just to give you a glimpse of the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on that most people are oblivious to and actually flirt with in ways they shouldn't. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, listen to what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. By the way, is this battle just happening in the spiritual realm amongst angels? No, it says we wrestle against it too. A lot of times you don't realize that. We got to understand that there's something going on that you need to be aware of. Again, don't try to go and storm the gates of hell. Don't go and say, I command you, Satan, or all this kind of stuff. The Bible even says that Michael, the archangel, when disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, in the book of Jude, it tells us he even didn't dare bring accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 very clearly says that even though all authority has been given to Jesus, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. So if Jesus, who has full authority and could easily cast Satan into the pit and bind Satan is not exercising that full authority, how wrong is it for us as Christians to think, and there's teachers out there that'll say this, that you can just bind Satan? No. Our job, the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 7, is this, that we're to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and he'll leave. But he doesn't leave because of us. He leaves because of the one that we submit ourselves to. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So you need to understand that this is going on, and that's why you need to have the full armor of God. Now, if you were to keep reading, it says, list the different parts of the armor and also the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Are there times that we are to cast out demons? Yes, he gave them authority to do that in certain times. But also, it's when the Spirit of God is working at that time. And as you know, there are other instances where they could not. It was a more powerful situation than they were ready for. And that's why Jesus said, this kind only come out by prayer and fasting. You've got to have a closer walk before that kind of stuff happens and know what he's saying. So keep this in mind. Go to, go to uh, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 19. And 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 19. It says, we know that we're from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let that sink in for a minute. We know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 3 through 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4. And Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, small g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, hang on for a second. Does that mean if Satan's blinded somebody, they're never going to be able to see it? No. But what are we to do in those instances? We have loved ones and people that we want to know Jesus, but they're blinded right now to it. We what? We pray, we ask God to open their eyes, give them a heart to seek. The Bible says, if you seek, you will find if you seek with your whole heart. But if they've been blinded, that's when we have to say, Lord, could you do something to open their eyes? Could you give them a hunger to just ask, Lord, if you're there, reveal yourself. Lord, if this really is true, show me. God, if you're there, reveal yourself. And so if you know people that need to know the Lord, you're not gonna win the argument. This is a spiritual battle going on. And your perfect wording isn't going to fix the situation. But if you ask God, he's the one that's got, I think you said it, two to one. But not only that, Jesus, greater is he who's in us than he's in the world. Ask God to do a work to begin to open their eyes. Now, we're not going to turn there because of time, but Jesus even told his disciples, hey, uh, in John 15, verses 18 through 21, he said, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I mean, think about that for a second. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us. So you got to understand that. Now, what we're going to do in closing in the last 10 minutes that we have here tonight, look at verses 20 and 21 of Daniel chapter 10. There's something very interesting that he says here that's going to launch us into our study for next week. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, the angel says to Daniel, And he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you, sorry, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except except against these, except Michael, your prince. Now, people have read that for years and thought that he's talking about the Bible. He's not referring to the Bible here. He's telling Daniel here, the angel tells Daniel, I'm going to show you and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to reveal to you the things that are inscribed in the book or the words of truth. This could be also translated uh, the words of truth. In other words, I'm going to show you that the Bible teaches that actually God has a book in which he has inscribed what is to come. He's already spoken it. And it's written down, and the angels come to reveal some of those things to Daniel of what is to come. It shouldn't surprise us that God would have future things already written down as settled before they happen. Right? It shouldn't surprise you to see that, should it? That God already has things written down as settled before they happen? Let me give you an example of that. Go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13, look at verses 5 through 8. It says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority. There it is, allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God and blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. 
Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on the earth at this time will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. In other words, the whole earth is going to worship the beast, the Antichrist, except who? The ones whose names have already been written before the foundation of the world. It shouldn't surprise us that God has already written down things ahead of time. He likes actually to record things. I'm going to show you a couple of things like the examples of that in just a second. But don't think for a second that that means that you don't have a responsibility. No, you still, God's foreknowledge does not remove your responsibility. You still have a responsibility. I've always said to people this for years. Look, God knows what choice you're already going to make before you make it. But you don't. So make the right choice. Because you still have the ability to make the choice. All right. But actually... Isaiah 48 gives us a little more insight into this. Go to Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 8. Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 8. Look at what God says, what separates him from all the false gods. He says, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know you're obstinate, and your neck is is at iron sinew, and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did them, lest my carved image or my metal image commanded them. Lest you'd say that. In other words, God says, the thing that I'm going to do to reveal to you that I am the only one is I'm going to tell you what happens before it happens. I announced it, and then I did it, and it came to pass. Keep that in mind. Oh, and by the way, he's not only written down all the stuff that's going to happen, the words of truth. Daniel's going about, about to get some. He is also recording other things. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Just before Matthew. Yes, ma'am. Malachi chapter 3, look at verses 16 through 18. I hope your name's here. Malachi chapter 3, 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see it? Those who feared the Lord gathered together, and he wrote down their names. And he says, these are the ones that are going to be my treasured possession. When I set up my kingdom and there's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, these people are going to be a part of it. By the way, is your name already written down? By the way, that should be an easy answer. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, your name's already written. You're sealed. You're his. You're guaranteed eternity. But he's left us here. Why has he left us here then? I mean, if I'm guaranteed that I'm going to heaven, why can't I just get saved and go. 
There's reward. Remember how Paul sat in that prison in Philippians chapter 1 and he says, I'm torn between going to be with Christ, which is better by far, or staying here. But if I stay in the body, I'll actually accrue more reward. Folks, you're already there. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says we're already seated in the heavenly realms. Yet at the same time, we're still here. And there's a chance for us to be used of him if we just say, Lord, on a daily basis, I want to walk with you. Go to Revelation chapter 20, though. Not only is he recording those who know him, he's also recording all the things that have been done by those who have rejected him. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, which, as we just saw, was written in these books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Actually, at this judgment, everyone that comes before this throne, they're all going to the lake of fire. But before they do, God does two things. He opens up the books and everything they've ever done on the earth because they've decided not to receive Jesus' payment for their sins, which means they'll come cover it themselves. Everything they've ever done had been recorded, and they were judged according to what had been written in those books. And then God does one more thing. He opens up the book of life, which is those who have trusted in Jesus, and he shows them, you never trusted in my payment for your sin. And since their name's not in that book, they're cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So the angel Daniel is to, so the angel comes to Daniel and says, I've been sent to explain to you the words of truth. There must be some book that God has where everything that's to happen has been written down. Daniel's going to be given some of that. And it's now in our Bible. And we're going to study it in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And that's going to take us the rest of our time. The vision that is the foundation has been laid here in chapter 10 is about to begin in chapter 11. And over the next few, three, four weeks, we're going to break down chapter 11 and 12 and finish our study of Daniel. And if you like history, come on back, because this will blow your mind when you see what we're about to see. I love you guys. Thanks for coming.